Past Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f*** you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f***ing Put that in. I don't... So the Tribe drops its third straight on this trip, 6-1 to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Talk about the past, talk about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brad is out. Look at, look at this. Brad is out. And uh, David Mann. Sell the team. Yes, welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio. Reminder, we keep the discussion going, interactive program, the whole thing. Tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli, and I'll continue this discussion that way during the duration of the program. Uh, one thing I want to start out with is talk about an outfielder that certainly has a lot of upside, but he's been uh, hurt by a lot of a series of injuries that have really set him back, um, you know, really during the prime of his career. And that's Grady Sizemore, the former Indians outfielder. And of course, Sizemore will likely sit out the rest of this season as he looks to recover. Uh, we talked about in the offseason how Sizemore was willing to um, kind of just wait until he was 100% healthy before he would start fielding offers as far as uh, another contract to be part of another major league team. And you think of teams that may be interested in getting that bargain type of player in regards to adding a guy that you know may not cost that much, may sign a deal with a lot of incentives in it. And Grady Sizemore is right up that type of alley. You know, If you're a team like the New York Mets and maybe you spend some money this offseason, I think we expect them to do that in regards to free agency and trades. A guy like Grady Sizemore is interesting because I think you know scouts will be out there to just monitor his health and just make sure as he's in a position that he could go back and be a significant type of player in the major leagues. And here's a guy that obviously in his prime, obviously in, at his best, uh, was a phenomenal player and one of the top center fielders in all of Major League Baseball for a couple seasons with the Cleveland Indians. And here's a guy that certainly wants to run himself out there a little while longer. Right now, he he is just, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 31 years old. And, you know, obviously his last couple seasons have been a little bit of a disappointment. Just 71 games in the 2011 season. Didn't play at all in 2012. He's not going to play at all in 2013. And really his last full season was 2008, where he hit 33 homers and drove in 90 runs. You know, the guy's going to strike out a little bit, but he draws his share of walks. A very good on-base percentage guy in his prime, uh, 370 to 390 as his best seasons. And the question would be, how much does this guy have left? The guy who's played uh, a bunch of games at center field but nowhere else. He hasn't played a corner outfield spot 
in a game in his career would certainly be more of a candidate to do that, to be more of a left fielder or a right fielder or a DH at this stage of his career. But you look at the batting average while while he's been out there and playing for the Indians, hit just 211 in 33 games in 2010, 224 in 71 games in 2011. And like you said, two more years, the last two seasons, he has not played a major league game, would certainly be a guy that would have to consider a minor league contract at this point. He would be a guy that would take a Marlon Bird type of deal for one season. And maybe if you're Sandy Alderson, maybe you're thinking along that lines. Maybe you bring in a guy like this with the hopes that he could somehow be a player that was close to what he was in 2006 when he hit 290 with 26 homers, 76 RBIs, 134 runs scored, 190 hits, and 53 doubles. Remember, he was kind of an Iron Man for a couple of years when he was healthy with the Cleveland Indians. A guy that, in spite of being a guy that plays hard, that plays very at a high energy level, uh, was able to play in a lot of games. Of course, he's broken down considerably over the last several seasons. But, you know, you would look at a guy like that with a guy, as, a, as a guy that you would want to bring in on a minor league contract. And if I'm the New York Mets, if I'm the Philadelphia Phillies, if I'm the New York Yankees, if I'm anybody in Major League Baseball, I would certainly see what it would take to bring in a Grady Sizemore on a minor league contract. You put some incentives out there. You say, if this guy is anything close to what he was in his prime, then maybe he can make some money. Maybe he can make $5 million. Maybe he can make even more than that if he plays at the level that he's capable of doing. But as we go into the offseason, and obviously we'll have a ton of time to talk about it here on the Pass Ball Show and other programs here on the MTR Radio Network, Grady Sizemore is a quiet guy that I think will get some consideration going into next year. The question is, do you sign him now? And that sounds like a stupid question. Why would you sign a guy now that's only going to be around for a couple months unless you're an absolute pennant contending team and you think he's 100%? But if you bring him in to a point where he'll either sit on your roster the rest of the season or play in a couple games in September, you may get a chance to see him on the field and get an understanding of what you can get for him in the next year or two. Maybe bring him in for the rest of the season and maybe put him in a situation where you put a couple options out there and if they pick up the option for the next season, you you have an advantage over other teams because there's going to be 30 teams that are going to be hoping that Grady Sizemore is healthy. And unless you have an outfield that's completely set for next year, which not a lot of teams do, some teams do, but not very many. Unless you have that outfield that's set that you know which three guys are going to be playing there in the 2014 season, I think you'd want to take a look at Grady Sizemore. But listen, we're going to jump into an interview I recorded with former minor league pitcher Mike Lumley. And Mike is uh, associated with the London Badgers in Ontario, Canada, and a, a place that he played for when he was with the Detroit Tigers organization. And he's actually a part owner of that organization. So I hope you guys enjoy this spot I did with former minor league pitcher Mike Lumley. Good afternoon. It's John Pielli. I'm here with former pitcher in the Detroit Tigers organization, Mike Lumley. Mike, what's going on, buddy? That's cool, man. First, uh, first, let's get into you know what you're doing now with uh, you know the London Badgers and you know Ontario, the whole thing. Well, right now, just uh, running an 18 organization from uh, 10U right up to 18U uh, organization. We have to try to run that like a the minor league system, so everybody does kind of the same things. We work on the same plays, all that kind of good stuff, and. Um, and right now, personally, we're in the 18U team uh, throughout each summer. No, good deal, man. Now, uh, you know, obviously, you know, prior to that, you had a chance to pitch 
you know, a lot of minor league ball, pitching in the Detroit organization. You were added to the 40-man roster. Tell us a little bit about your experience pitching professionally. No, that's a great experience. And, you know, that's kind of one of the things why I came back and coached. It's experiences that I had, all the positive stuff that I had through uh, pro baseball is kind of the things I want, want our players to, to enjoy. And, you know, you know the, the bus trips, the hotels, and, you know, some think that's a grind. And, you know, I took it the other way and felt it was uh, a very positive thing and uh, a great experience. Now, when you you know when you uh, when you got a chance to pitch, you mentioned you're you know you're added to a forty man roster. Tell us a little bit about how it. I mean, it must it must have been a disappointment to not not get into a major league game. Yeah, it was because uh, when I did get there, uh, I had shoulder problems when I got on the uh, when I actually got the spring training. I came out of uh, the Mexican League uh, that summer or that winter actually when I got picked up put on the 40 man and then when I got back I really couldn't even throw in spring training so it got really a little bit frustrating so you ended up getting injured and you know obviously you probably went through the process of uh you know of you know whatever it was a rehab I don't know if you needed surgery or anything but you know what you know once once you went through that uh tell us a little bit about your your trials and trying to get back into the game yeah that's kind of the tough part right because you're you know the last part of that season I I could throw part way through, you go through all the rehab and you know, long toss and, you know, add the lights type thing and, you know, the inflammation went down as much as it could and, but by the end of the season I just still couldn't even throw so I ended up having surgery uh, on my shoulder. Uh, came back pretty quickly, like by the start of the season I think I ended up having uh, surgery in September or October and was still able to at least get back to spring training. Um, after that, I was let go. Just, just didn't have enough of my arm to, to get through. Almost took a year or two to get it back to where it was almost 100 percent again. Now, you know, obviously, you, you obviously had a lot of work, a lot of strength, determination to get to where you got to initially. Um, you know, how, how how frustrating was it to try to get get through that? And really, obviously, your goal is to get into the major leagues. When you're you know when you're battling back through that, is there anything is there anything that you're thinking mentally as far as trying to just you know just get yourself into a major league game? I think it's just staying positive. It's you can't change what you know what happened. So it's you know you're always a pretty focused person and goal oriented. So you know whatever the Tigers gave you to, to work out and get better, I did more just to make sure that I did get back and got back as strong as I could. So it's not, you know, you can't control most of the stuff that happens outside of, you know, what you're doing yourself. So um, I always just worked on the stuff that I can control and, and work hard at it. Once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here with former Pitchers of the Tigers organization, Mike Lumley. Now, you know, what... When, you know, you're dealing a lot with kids now. What what do you think are the best attributes from what you experienced that you're able to pass on to the to, to the people that you're helping out? I think the biggest thing is just you know the, the knowledge and really the work ethic. And you know, not everybody's going to go pro. Not everybody's going to go to you know high D one university. And but you know, taking that work ethic that you have to do day in and day out. Uh, you know, bring the passion that you love for the game and make sure that gets reflected onto the players. 
and they see that because usually, you know, they're going to be a reflection of their leader. And if you're that kind of guy, they're going to be, or, or in most cases, they're going to be that guy as well. They're going to try to emulate what you do and try to to work hard. And and if they do that, they'll bring out the best of their ability. And if you know, if it's junior college or D1 or pros in their cards or in their physical ability, then yeah, definitely. And I'll tell you what's interesting about it. And, you know, this gets brought up, you know, probably too n- not enough. The fact that a lot of a lot of kids, when they go through their high school, they're the best player on the team. You know, the best college kids are the best players on the team. And, you know, they, they end up when they go they, they go pro or they get close to being selected to go pro. Uh, they're amongst a bunch of a bunch of the best players on their team, too. So the competition certainly gets itself up as they move up the ranks. No, that's exactly right, and, you know, really when you get up there, you have to, what's going to set you apart, you know, from anybody else, and, you know, we can look at it, we have, you know, guys in independent ball throwing 96 miles an hour, we can't make it into the big leagues, we got guys in the big leagues throwing 92 miles an hour, and are going to make it to the Hall of Fame, or All-Stars, so, you know, that's, that's that thing, the work ethic and the mentality and everything else that's going to set you apart from, from anybody else. Yeah, very true, man. You talk about, you know, you could have all the talent in the world, but if you don't apply it, then, you know, you're going to get passed up pretty quickly. Absolutely. All right, listen, Mike, I want to thank you for having some time today. I appreciate you giving me a couple minutes. Hopefully we can stay in touch, and uh, I can speak to you sometime in the near future. No, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. Hope you guys enjoyed that spot there with Mike Lumley, a former minor league pitcher in the Detroit Tigers organization. We're going to take our first break of this part of the program. Be back with a lot more stuff going on. Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network, back after this. This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to mtrradio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin'. And Joey Baboots. We host the morning show together, and every morning we start up our cars and make the drive up to the studio. And you know, we always see one or two accidents along the way. We wanted to make sure our listeners know where to go for the best in car care in South Jersey. That's right, James. Red Rose Body Shop. That's Red Rose Body Shop specializes in collision and framework. They're the best in South Jersey for paint and bodywork, unibody framework, free towing, and free estimates. So call today, 609-927-9454 and check out their website, www.redroseautobody.com. Follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Red Rose Rose Body Shop, 2033 Ocean Heights Avenue, Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey, 609-927-9454. Red Rose Body Shop is South Jersey's collision specialist. 609-927-9454 or redrosebodyshop.com. Been in an accident? Take your car to the professionals at Red Rose Body Shop. Be at least 
Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, continuing with you, reminding you, of course, tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. I'll continue the discussion off-air or on-air while I'm talking. I'll get back to you. We'll have a little bit of discussion, like we always do here on a Passball Show, Saturday mornings, 10 to 12, on the MTR Radio Network. Of course, a reminder, you can always catch me Thursdays on the evening drive from 5 to 7, really getting you set up for everything going on in that day's sports. You obviously have football coming. There's going to be Thursday night football. We'll do previews of the games, pennant race. you got Major League Baseball playoffs coming. So a lot of interesting things going on, you know, at the time from 5 to 7, a lot of stuff to preview, a little bit of a chance to kind of recap of stuff that happened the day before, but mostly the opportunity to preview and get you, the listener, in on discussions through the 609-910-0687 uh, phone line. We, you know, we'll continue that going, obviously, Thursdays from 5 to 7 on MTR Evening Drive. Of course, I do spots, a weekly spot on the David Dobin Show on MTR's Nightcap, uh, usually, usually Wednesday nights at 10.30, so you can catch me on there. And, of course, MTR morning throwdown with Bill Zeltman and Mike Sanfilippo. Um, I'm usually part of the show on Tuesday, you know, Tuesday mornings from 7 to 9. So a bunch of different ways you could catch me on the MTR radio network. But moving forward, one thing I did want to touch on, because this is going to be a little bit of a tease about a guest that I'm eventually going to have on my show. We're talking about walk-off home runs hit at the end of a series to close out either a World Series, a League Championship Series, or a Division Series. And, it, you know, it's only happened eight times in the history of Major League Baseball. And you could start out with the, uh, you know, Bill Mazeroski's home run. He hits against the New York Yankees to close out the 1960 World Series. You got, of course, Chris Chambliss hitting a home run in 1976 uh, against the Kansas City Royals to get the Yankees into the World Series, where they ended up losing to the Big Red Machine and the Cincinnati Reds. 1993, Joe Carter hitting a walk-off home run against Mitch Williams to win the World Series for the Toronto Blue Jays. 1999, Todd Pratt of the New York Mets hits the walk-off home run against Matt Mante and the Arizona Diamondbacks to get the Mets into the NLCS. 2003, Aaron Boone hits Hits the home run against the Boston Red Sox to close out the ALCS and get the Yankees into the World Series in 2003. A year later, David Ortiz hits a walk-off home run to bring the Boston Red Sox into the ALCS where they end up winning and, of course, winning the World Series that year. Uh, you got 2005. You got Chris Burke's home run that he hits against the Atlanta Braves, getting the uh, Houston Astros into the ALCS, where they end up beating the Cardinals and, of course, lose to the Chicago White Sox in the World Series. And don't forget about Maglio Ordonez. Maglio Ordonez hits a shot in 2006 to get the Detroit Tigers into the World Series. So a lot of interesting things to get into there. Walk-off home runs to get teams into the next round. One of those players will be uh, on, on the pass ball show within the next couple weeks. And I want to take a little step back into time, and we're going to talk about the great Joe DiMaggio for a couple minutes. And you know, obviously Joe DiMaggio has his place in baseball history, and you know where he ranks. You know the type of player he is. You know that he was one of the best. He was certainly one of the best players to play during his time. Him and Ted Williams kind of had the back and forth of who's better, but they were both extremely dominant and deserved their place in baseball's Hall of Fame. 
Now, Joe DiMaggio, before he went to the war, and you could say the same about Ted Williams, you could say the same thing about Stan Musial or Bob Feller or Eno Slaughter or anybody else that played around that time that had their career interrupted because of, of World War II. Joe DiMaggio's numbers that he had in his first seven seasons were phenomenal. In fact, they were so good that you could make a case that he could have been a Hall of Famer based off of those seven seasons alone. Of course, when he returned to the Yankees, uh, you know, in 1945, he led the team to several more championships and pennant-winning teams in regards to the New York Yankees. They won in 47, 49, 50, and, of course, 51, which was his last season, 52 and 53 after he left. But Joe DiMaggio, for those numbers that he put up, in his first seven seasons, and we're talking about his first seven seasons from 1936 to 1942. And, and that's when, he, you know, of course, 42 is when he left to go to the service and, you know, missed a couple seasons because of that. But hit 339 in his first seven years, which was 1,349 for 3,878. 858 runs scored, 243 doubles, 82 triples, 219 home runs, and 960 runs batted in. So I'm going to give you what an average was for each year, each of the first seven seasons. And, and how many other players have done this? Of course, you could probably bring Albert Pujols up and hit. And, you know, his first 10, 10 or so seasons, he put up really great numbers to start off his career. But, you know, you could say DiMaggio could have done that over the course of his first 10 if he was, you know, in fact, you know, able to play and not going into service. But, you know, 123 runs scored a year. 35 doubles a year, 12 triples a year, 31 home runs a year, 137 RBIs a year, a 339 average on a team that was winning just about every year he was there. They won the World Series in 36, 37, 38, and 39. After taking a year off in 40, they were back. They won the World Series in 41, of course, won the pennant in 42, and won the World Series again in 1943 against the St. Louis Cardinals. But, you know, you know you're looking at a guy that certainly took the reins from a Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, and kept that team going. He was the central piece of that team. And had he played just seven seasons, he should have gotten extreme consideration for baseball's Hall of Fame. In fact, to a point that he was on the Hall of Fame ballot in 1945, which was the year he ended up coming back, he only received, I think, 0.4% of the, the vote, which obviously wouldn't have been enough to keep him on had he stopped playing. But here's a guy that the Veterans Committee would have nominated eventually and he would have been in a hall of fame had he just retired after his first seven seasons but he came back he came back with a flourish to finish his career not only with the the good stats not only with the dominant stats amongst being one of the top players in all of major league baseball but he kept winning and was part of like i said world series championships of 47 49 50 and 51 and obviously passed the torch to Mickey Mantle after he retired. He played that one season in 51 with Mantle and just felt like he couldn't go on any further. But, you know, certainly something to consider in regards to Joe DiMaggio being not only one of the top players in baseball history, not only being a Patriot, the war hero, the whole thing, but a guy that may have been good enough to make it into baseball's Hall of Fame after his first seven seasons couple things I want to touch on in regards to baseball going on right now. And, you know, the hits really keep on coming for the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. And I've touched on a number of different shows and a number of different uh, times uh, about how this team was projected to do so much and has done so little this year. 
and I brought up probably on last week's show or the week before how Mike Sosha may end up losing his job because of this. But like I said, the hits keep on coming. Tommy Hansen, one of the top pitchers that they brought in from, you know, of course, the Atlanta Braves, along with Jason Vargas, was optioned to AAA to make room for Vargas in regards to uh, to to trying to fill a spot on the team's roster. And it's just showing that, you know, here's a guy who received $3.725 million in 2013, his first year of arbitration eligibility. And, you know, you're looking at a guy that certainly a lot more was expected from him, not only that him but the Angels. And you look at a guy that has a 559 ERA in 67 and two-thirds innings, has been on the DL, and was a guy that was supposed to help out at the top of the rotation and has not gotten the job done. You know, you look at the fact that he is owned by the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. He's going to be, you know, in his second year of arbitration eligibility next year. He could be a non-tender candidate. And it would be crazy to see a guy like that that has such high hopes for in Atlanta maybe non-tendered this year by the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. And he uh, he has a lot to do, and you don't really talk about it too much. You want to blame it on Pujols. You want to blame it on Josh Hamilton for the reasons the Angels haven't gotten a job done. It's been their starting pitching. Jared Weaver's been hurt. Uh, Jason Vargas, who's coming back now, has been hurt. And you look at you know Jordan Walden, who goes over to the Braves in a trade for Tommy Hansen. I thought that was a great deal for the Angels. And you know you look, they may actually cut bait with him after this season, which I find very interesting. And another guy that's out there is actually a free agent right now, and that's Mark Reynolds, who was released by the Cleveland Indians. And there's been talk about the possibility of Mark Reynolds possibly returning to the Baltimore Orioles, a place where he had success at the end of last year and into the postseason. Now, you know, Buck Showalter obviously is going to be kind of on low-key about this. I don't think he's going to be in a spot where we talk about where he's going to overly talk about the possibility of bringing in players that are in other organizations but this is an interesting one because Buck Showalter has the uh you know you know has had him before was a significant part of the Baltimore Orioles team last year and 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 it's certainly something that I, I think Buck Showalter may be in favor of having but he's in a spot right now where he can't say I want him on our team and he may say that behind the scenes. He may say that, listen, let's bring in Mark Reynolds and see how it goes. I mean, Reynolds could play a little bit of first base. He could DH a little bit. Obviously, the emergence of Chris Davis and Manny Machado kind of make Reynolds' ability to play corner infield positions kind of mute. And you may you may want to look at it in, in a situation where Reynolds will, would just be kind of a depth guy on the bench. And that's certainly something that could be considered. And I, I would be surprised to see Reynolds with the Orioles, but I would be absolutely shocked if Mark Reynolds wasn't wearing another major league uniform and, and, it, and contributing for somebody towards the pennant races as we try to finish things off in this season. Another interesting story is out there is the possibility that Paul Konerko, first baseman for the Chicago White Sox, could be in his last season and may end up retiring. And Canerco, of course, is a guy that certainly deserves to have his number retired by the uh, the Chicago White Sox. His 14 has been something that that certainly deserves to be honored over time. And you look at the numbers that he's put up over his 15 years with the Chicago White Sox. He definitely deserves to be honored at some point. But the question is, is he done after this season? He, his contract runs out after this year. And I think he's at a point where he probably only wants to play in Chicago for the White Sox. And that being said, you're looking at a guy that probably will hang it up after this season. He's having a tough year. He's been injured. He's hit just 243. He's got just eight, nine homers, 40 RBIs. 
uh, you know, a guy that was kind of on the decline over the last couple seasons. But what, what has been interesting is the fact that this guy has gone out there and hit for average. 312 in 2010, 300 in 2011, with over 100 RBIs both seasons. Even though he just drove in 75 runs last year, he still hit 298. And those are things that have to be considered when you look at, uh, you know, a guy who is on, kind of on the decline right now. And, you know, it would be nice to see Paul Canerco honored, you know, in regards to where he belongs in the place of Chicago White Sox history. But here's a guy that probably is looking at the possibility of retiring at the end of this season. It would be sad, but certainly if he, you know, if he announces it, he'd get a, a warm reception, the respect that he deserves in regards to moving on as one of the best players to play for the Chicago White Sox. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take a break. We're going to finish off with our interview with former Major League pitcher Dave LaRoche after this. I'm Karen Siaska-Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call. 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. Listening to MTR Radio, powered by MTRmedia.com. This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to MTRradio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Dave LaRoche. Dave, what's going on, man? Oh, nothing. Just uh, enjoying retirement in southeast Kansas. Oh, nice. Good deal, man. And, uh, you know, yeah, but, you know, you know, coming into, you know, you were drafted in, you know, in the late 60s by the uh, the California Angels. You end up making your uh, emergence in the major leagues as a reliever. Now a lot of you know a lot of people may say that 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 is a kind of a taller order as far as you know not not starting a lot of games in the minors and coming up as a as a major league relief pitcher. What do you uh, you know what do you, what do you feel about that and how hard was your track to the major leagues? So I got they knew I had pitched in high school and uh, 
I got pressed into duty, and so for the remainder of that year, I pitched and played the outfield. And I would be, he would put me in whichever field was closest to our bullpen, and uh, Fred Koenig had a sign. If he was going to go to me, he would give me the sign before he left the dugout, and somebody from the bullpen would run over to the foul line, and I'd play catch with them real quick, and then he'd you know, call me into the game uh, just from throwing whatever, four or five pitches. But, you know, I'd been playing the whole game, so I was loose. And I'd come in and pitch. And I, I think the reason was that I got loose real quick and that I bounced back. So I, you know, I could pitch. I think when I first started, I pitched four or five days in a row. It was coming out of the fourth inning or two innings, whatever. Or coming out of the outfield. I started a handful of games, so, you know, they tried me a little at both, and I think that they talked to me at the end of the year and said, well, we think your fastest way to the big leagues is as a pitcher, and we think your fastest way as a pitcher is as a reliever, so I was one of the first that was probably totally groomed from the beginning to be a reliever, uh, and that was in 68. And so 69 was my first full year as a pitcher, my first spring training as a pitcher and full year. And uh, in 1970, I spent four months in the big leagues. So once I converted to a pitcher, I, I moved pretty fast. Yeah, I tell you, you obviously found something that you know wasn't demanded at times. Yeah, I ended up having a very successful career. Now, you know, you come up with the Angels in 1970 and 1971. Uh, you know, your your role as a lefty reliever is certainly a lot different than it would be nowadays. You know, you look at you know left hand relief pitchers coming in there to face one batter. You you are you were the antithesis of it. You went out there, you pitched you know sometimes three, four, five innings. You know, tell tell us a little bit about what you see as the difference between you know being a reliever then, especially a lefty reliever, and the way relievers are used today. Well, back then, I think ideally, well, you know, most teams had you know back with the four man rotation, but the four or five man rotation, and ideally they would have like five or six relievers, and you'd have. One or two, they called them long men and middle men and short men. And, of course, depending on the inning and depending on the score, if you were behind, the guy could pitch the eighth and ninth or something. But they like to have a left and right at each one, or for sure a left and right a middle man or a left and right uh, short man. And... You, know, you didn't come in until unless the starter ran out of gas. Uh, you know, the, your top pitchers would have 20-plus complete games. Your aces, you know, one or maybe one and two, would you know, have 20 or more complete games a lot of times. And uh, most of your starters would have 10 or more complete games. So it was a lot different. You came in... Very rarely to just start an inning. And, you know, you, most of the time, now if they pitch it for the pitcher, when I first started, it was before the DH. So when they pitch it for the pitcher, obviously you started an inning, or, you know, it could be after a home 
months you'd come in with nobody on, but a lot of times you were coming in in, in jams. And if you go, and then you just pitched. If you were getting them out, you stayed in there. They didn't just switch pitchers. Uh, like you know, you said, I probably had more, you know, more than one inning saves than one inning or less saves in my career. Yeah, it's very interesting, man. And I'll tell you, one thing I want to get into, I actually spoke talk about this on another program. <clears throat> you know, as as you get older and more experience as a left-handed pitcher out of the bullpen, do do you think that do you think that experience is is the key to learning how to pitch per se, getting left-hand hitters out in big spots? Or or do you think that it's something that, you know, a pitcher that just because they throw from the left-hand side can be thrown into that at such a young age? No, I think you, you know you have to you learn some. You're you're right in one respect is early on you probably get by more with stuff and not knowing that much about pitching and not maybe not having that great a command. But as you get older, uh, usually your command gets better and you learn the hitters better and you learn especially. Uh, you know, as a lefty, you're, you're going to face the same hitters a lot. Like I faced the George Bretts and the, and the Reggie Jackson and the Carl Yastrzemskis. I faced those guys a lot. So, you, you know, you kind of learn what works and what doesn't. Uh, you know, with, with new uh, young guys, it's, you know, it's a little more difficult to get it go by scouting reports, but of course our scouting reports started with the premise that everybody pitches different, and when in doubt, go to your strength and take your chance, you know, my strength, if it was, the, my strength was the same as the hitter's strength, I, I felt I was okay taking my chances that way. Yeah, very good point, man. Once again, this is John Pialli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Dave LaRoche. Now, Dave, you had probably your your best season, maybe you disagree, in uh, 1976 with the Indians. You know, that was a year that you pitched to a 224 ERA, over 100 strikeouts, and uh, barely less than 100 innings pitched. Uh, take us back to that season under Frank Robinson and the 1976 Indians, and, you know, what went right that season for you? Uh, well, Frank Robinson was probably best manager I was ever around as far as using a bullpen. You know, we had you know, almost the ideal situation. You know, we, I think we had, I know we had two and maybe three left-handers in the pen most of the time and then three right-handers. And depending on the, the inning and the score, when that phone rang, 90-some percent of the time, we knew who it was for. And guys would start moving around or heading towards the mound if, if the phone rang and they figured it was their area. Very rarely were we fooled on that. And just so you could prepare mentally and physically, uh, you know, start getting loose, start uh, getting mentally prepared for the game. Early in the game, the short guys would be more relaxed down the pen and just, you know, kind of having more fun, being more down there and then as the uh, you know the game we got deeper 
deeper into the game, then the long men would say, okay, they're done for the day, and they would start relaxing, especially if it was a tight game, and then the, the middlemen and short men would start getting their game paces on. And, and Frank just made that job so easy. He just always knew where you were and what your role was going to be. And, and, uh, and, and we had... Obviously, we didn't win. We weren't talented enough to win, but we were very competitive, and we just had a good bunch of guys. You know, Eckersley and Manning were young, and Dwayne Kuyper, so we had uh, Rico Cardis, and Frank Robinson was great. He was player manager, and he, he led by example so well. We would try to talk to him, uh, thought he should play more. But Rico Cardi was DH and, and having a great year, so you know, he didn't want to take time away from him. But Frank was such a great clutch player. Now he was, uh, you know, a Hall of Famer, you know, 583 home runs, you know, phenomenal, phenomenal player. And, you know, you mentioned about, about you know, him as, him as a manager and his ability to manage the bullpen. You really compare it to, you know, what goes on today and, you know, more managers than not. Have, you know, would probably consider their biggest uh, difficulty is managing their bullpens correctly. And you know, I think I think a guy that you know has that ability to bring in the right guy at the right time uh, has an as an advantage and is able should be able to win more games than the guy that can't. Well, t- I mean, today it's it's almost like a textbook. Uh, actually, it should be easier today because you know if you've got the lead. And the starter makes it through six. Unless it's a big lead, or if he's maybe got a shutout or something. You know, once they reach a pitch count, they take him out. And if it's the seventh, you go to your seventh inning guy. He pitches one inning. Your seventh guy pitches an inning, and your closer pitches an inning. And that, you know, it's just like clockwork. If you're behind, of course, now you try to give guys that need to work or try to set up situations. But you bring your setup guy in, it very rarely matters who's hitting. And your closer obviously doesn't matter who's hitting, whether it's left or right handers coming up, you bring them in. So it's pretty cut and dry. You know, starters, you don't have to send them back out there and, you know, try to get another inning out of them or something. I think the toughest thing that happens now is if you go extra innings, you very easily could have used four or five pitchers to get through the first nine innings, not counting four or five relievers. You know, if you go to some, if your starter goes five and you use somebody in the sixth and then maybe you bring your lefty guy in, or guy for the seventh and have to use your lefty guy in the seventh and then a guy in the eighth and your closer, they tie it up off your closer in the ninth. Now you're down to a real short bullpen and everybody's only used to working one inning. That's tough. Now, I tell you, it certainly has changed, you know, from you know, from when you pitched to when it is now. Once again, this is John Piali, I'm here for major league pitcher Dave LaRoche. Now, you know, it, you know, as, as you move on, you get a chance to get to be part of a couple postseasons, the 79 with the Angels. Uh, first start, let's talk about the 1979 Angels and, you know, what went right that season and getting a chance to pitch in a postseason for them. Well, there was, I mean, we had an unbelievable offensive 
think I, I would look at that and say almost every one of our starters had career years. I think there was two exceptions, and one would have been, uh, I think Rod was a crew. Anyway, there was somebody that hit like 300, but their you know, lifetime best was 330, and, uh, and Joe Rudy, I think, was hurt. Yeah, Ty, it was Bobby, Bobby Gritch had, like, he drove in 100 runs, had a great year. Uh, Brian Downing had a great year. We just had a lot of, uh, offensively, we were outstanding. Of course, then we had uh, Ryan and Tanana pitching, and, and they weren't at the top of their, they didn't have their best seasons, but, you know, they're always a threat out there. Yeah, take us back to that uh, that ALCS against the Baltimore Orioles. You know, the, the Orioles obviously had a very good team, but you know, if you look at the you know the uh, the offensive players, particularly for that Angels team, I thought I thought that was a that was a team that that very easily could have made the World Series. Yeah, we could have, but a lot of times, what happens in uh, playoff time is the best pitching dominates and. Uh, Baltimore, our pitching by the end of the year was a little bit beat up, and uh, Baltimore was strong, really strong, and uh, we, ne- we never really got it going. Just fell behind uh, early in the series and, and never could make anything of it. We won Tananas start uh, in game. Four, I guess, was it best of seven or was it best of five? Was game, man, it might have been game three. Yeah, I think it was best of five back then. Back then, yeah. Then it was game, the, we came home uh, to play game three, for three, and I think Tanana won, and then we uh, lost game four. Now, once again, it's John Pialy. I'm here with Dave LaRoche. Now, Dave, you know, you were probably considered one of the last major league picture, pitchers to throw that EFIS type pitch. You know, you called it Lalab, and you know, tell us a little bit about what you know what enticed you to go with that, and you know how you were able to have success throwing that pitch. <laughs> well, I, back then, you, you know, you get up when they call down, you get up and kind of go along when you get loose or real close, and then go along with the pitcher that was on the mound, and uh, so you're supposed to keep throwing. You know, maybe not as hard or as often as you were getting loose, but you had to stand on the mound and do something so that they could see that you were ready. So I'd stand there and I'd get loose real quick. And I was always working on the spin on my curveball. And so, you know, just throwing it real soft, I would kind of lob it in there. And, you know, it got a little bit higher as I would try to throw it softer. And then the guys in the and start saying, well, how high can you throw that and still throw it for a strike? So this is over the course of probably two years or two or three years. I just kept uh, messing around with it and throwing it and seeing. 
seeing how high I could throw it, and then the guys were all get down by home plate. They were the umpires and arguing, well, that would be a strike. No, that's not a strike. Well, it came down through the strike zone. It, it doesn't have to go through it, uh, you know, straight through it. It can come down any way it crosses through the strike zone. So they would be arguing about that. Finally, they kept daring me to do it in the game. And uh, I think it was my last Angel game. I, I came in early in the game. And it was our, maybe our last home game of the season. I think we went on a three-day road trip after that or something. Came in and I thought, oh, well, this is time to throw it. And so I think we were playing the Royals. And I ended up throwing, I don't know, eight or ten of them in, in about six innings of relief. And I had success, got four or five outs, and I gave up one hit, a blue pit. The guys in the pen were all, after the game, they were having a great laugh and then asking about it and enjoying it, but no one else said anything. And the next year I went to the Yankees, and I forget how it came up, but I said, well, I have this, this other pitch for situation. And I started throwing it in New York and having more and more success with it. And with New York writers, they had to have a name for it. And I just called it my curveball. And uh, so we lob it up there. And I think Barry Foot was locking near me. And the writers were saying, well, you got to have a name for that lob. And I think he said, well, how about Little Lob for LaRoche? I tell you, you find it very interesting because you know prior prior to you throwing it, there was a handful of other pitchers that have had have thrown had thrown similar pitches to that. You, you don't see it anymore. You know why? Why? You know, obviously, it's probably uh, has to do with you know mechanics and stuff like that, and you know the way that they've changed and bringing up the pitchers and the way they baby them and stuff like that. But what do you think is the biggest reason why no nobody has uh, decided to throw a pitch like that anymore? And 
I just remember looking at that. I had to cover my mouth, and, you know, with my my face with my glove as I was leaving the field. And I guess Billy Martin was furious, and the guys, the Ranger friends of mine, were saying they were laughing so hard they had to run up in the uh, locker room and hide in the shower because they could not. If Billy had seen them laughing or smiling, he would have just gone crazy. You know, he and George were talking. I don't know if he said something, but George sent a message down the next day or two that he wanted me to quit throwing that. He thought it was embarrassing the hitters. <laughs> and I just thought, well, I can't do that. It works. Fans like it. You know, if they hit one back off my forehead, they're not going to tell the hitters, oh, don't do that. You're hurting the pitcher. <laughs> so... I kept doing it. I said, well, I have to keep doing it as long as it works. Now, you think you would have had more success had you started throwing a pitch earlier? No, but I think what that gave, I never really had a change of my whole career, and I think that made me really see the value of changing speed. And uh, I think had I known that early in my career, I would have really developed a change of but I think that could have helped. Yeah, very true. Once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here with Dave LaRoche. Now, Dave, of course, your your son Adam plays, you know, for the Washington Nationals. Your your other son Andy has played in the major leagues before. Uh, tell us a little bit about what it, what it feels like to be the first generation, you know, of of a series of uh, uh, of members of your family being in the major leagues. Uh, well, I'll tell you, it's a lot easier playing than it is watching. <laughs> It's really fun, and I'm very proud of all of my kids. My oldest, Jeff, played in the minor leagues for seven or eight years. I never did get uh, you know, to the big leagues, but he had fun and enjoyed playing baseball and now the others. And that, the main thing for me is that they're having fun. They're enjoying what they're doing, and it's, just, it, it's tough to watch when they're struggling. And just want to go out and do it, but uh, but, but it's, it's nice. You know, we can have talks, and we understand. I understand what they're going through when when they're struggling. It's tough. Yeah, no question about it. Listen, Dave, I want to thank you for having some time today. I appreciate you being part of the program, and you know, let's stay in touch. Maybe I can speak to you sometime in the near future. Okay, John. Well, thanks for having me on. This is my interview with Dave LaRoche, former Major League pitcher for several different teams. I want to thank you guys for tuning in to the program today. Big thanks, of course, to Dave LaRoche, to Mike Lavalier, and Mike Lumley. This is the Passball Show right here on the MTR Radio Network. We'll be back with you next week, breaking down everything going on in Major League Baseball. And once again, the only program here on the MTR Radio Network that gives you consistent baseball interviews every week.